All right, Salt City. My name is Jordan Adams. I'm the, the college pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, uh, hi, that's me. Come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to meet you. Here's the deal. We're starting this thing off this morning with a little bit of crowd participation. Yep, your favorite. You, you guys know you love this stuff. So here's the deal. This isn't going to work unless you just own it, okay? So I'm about to have you raise your hands if you are above average at something. Not perfect. Don't overthink this, okay? Right now, if you are an above average driver, Raise your hand. Go, 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 go. Keep them up. Keep them up. Just own it. Just own it. Okay. Nice. Nice. Okay. Now, if you are a better driver than your spouse, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, oh, man. Bold. Drew. Bold. Uh, so you guys are more honest than the first service was. There was only like a few of them that raised their hands. They were trying to look like humble Christians. I, I respect that. Like way to be honest. Here's the deal. If you ask that in a room, people have done research on this, 85 to 90% of people will say they are an above average driver. So if you're doing that math, there's something messed up, right? Uh, they, they did a, I probably shouldn't call it a study because it was on, they did, they did a study on software engineers and they asked them, uh, hey, like rate yourself as a software engineer in comparison to the rest of your company. And 42% said that they were in the top 5% of their company. So software engineers are apparently a little cocky or something. I don't know what's going on. But okay, this is actually a research thing. It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect that we as human beings naturally think that we're better than we actually are at most things. And I think that's actually not just true at like kind of arbitrary stuff, like how good of a driver you are. I think that's actually true with your morality and with your Christianity. The majority of you in this room naturally think that you are a more moral, better person than you actually are. And I'm actually throwing myself in that camp too. That that's actually natural. And so what I want to talk about today is Christian liberty or Christian freedom, which is what I would describe Acts 15 as being primarily about. And here's the reason why I wanted to point this out is because I think that inclination in us to think that we're better than we actually are robs us of Christian liberty. Thinking that you are good actually robs you of freedom. And I want to show you why that is. All right. So let's, let's dig into Acts 15. I'll start in verse one. I'll read five verses here. Uh, I'd love it if you would follow along with me in your Bibles or on your phone or whatever. It'll be on the screens as well. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so that's the, the Jewish religious leaders, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so here's what's going on. Paul and Barnabas are seeing some incredible things happen, and not just them, actually a lot of other believers in Christ are seeing some incredible things happen. 
Uh, Paul's been on this missionary journey that he's got a lot of stories coming back from. One of the most amazing things that they've gotten to see is Gentiles coming to know Jesus. Now, to us, that doesn't mean a lot, but in that time, that was absolutely crazy. So Gentiles were non-Jewish people. And, and the common thinking of the time was that in order for a Gentile to believe in Jesus, you would have to actually convert to Judaism and actually follow kind of the cultural practices of Judaism. But what they're seeing is, is all of these Gentiles all of a sudden are just coming into the Christian faith, okay? This is a bunch of vegans showing up at a barbecue competition. Like it's getting weird and uncomfortable for people because there's all of these kind of new people in there that they didn't expect. And so these Jewish leaders show up and they try and disrupt the movement by adding restrictions onto these new Christians. They're saying you need to not only convert to Christ, you need to convert to our culture, our way of life. And so essentially, there is this big theological debate, which I know you guys are like, oh, goody, can't wait to hear about that. Some, there's like two of you in the room that are pumped to hear about that, but the rest of you are like, ah, I don't know. This is why this is important. It, it actually, the reason why you currently are not following Jewish law is because of the decision that was made in, in Acts 15. So this has trickled down and formed Christianity throughout the centuries, Okay, so I want to talk to you about kind of this ruling. And so what they do is they get this council together of kind of all the big shots in the church. All the apostles are coming together and they're going to try and make a decision about this question. Are the Gentiles free? Do they have free access to Christ without any restrictions? And they're going to debate about it. And the first person to speak is Peter. And I want to tell you what Peter says. This is in verse 8. He says, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, this is the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. He made no distinction between us and them. Can you imagine what that would have been like as a Gentile? So the Jewish people thought that they were religiously, culturally, potentially racially elite in comparison to the Gentiles. And they had spent their lives looking down on them, avoiding them. And the Gentiles had felt like they were second-class citizens. And now what they're hearing is not only are you not a second-class citizen, but you have access to everything that the Jews have. You can come in. And so this is what I want to tell you this morning if you felt excluded in whatever way, if you felt excluded from a group of friends or, or from your family, or if you felt excluded on not having some of the same like capabilities or gifts that other people do, you take a backseat to no one in the kingdom of God. You are every bit as valuable as any other person but, but here's why this is, is tough for us to understand is because throughout our whole lives, we've tried to form these identities for ourselves. It's something that we naturally do as human beings. And what most of you were told is that in order to form an identity for yourself, you have to distinguish yourself from other people. You've got to be better. You've got to be smarter. You've got to work harder. You've got to prove yourself to be more successful so that you can make a name for yourself. And so all of a sudden, we bring ourselves into competition with each other. And groups actually do this too. 
We find people who think like us or look like us and we create these barriers and then we kind of yell at each other and try and figure out which group is best and each group kind of fights for its own rights against the rights of the other group. So you've got Republicans and Democrats, you've got rich people, poor people, you've got black people, you've got white people, you've got whatever that form these groups and kind of yell at each other. But this is what's true is all of those groups are leveled at the foot of the cross. Because Jesus Christ is now our new identity. You are not defined by those second tier things. You are defined by the fact that you're in Christ and we're all equally humbled underneath the cross. And so we start to look around at each other and go, actually, maybe we have some similarity in Christ. And that's why he can tear down the divisions that we can't tear down without him, that our culture can't tear down without him. So part of what being a Christian means is that you're reconciled not only to God, but to each other. And so we now live these not radically individual competitive lives, but these corporate lives that are kind of intermixed and intertwined. That's why we talk about community so much, because the person sitting next to you is the same as you in Christ. We're a family. And so we function like a family together. And that's part of the freedom that we have access to in Christ, is access to this new redeemed community. So I want to unpack this idea of Christian freedom a little bit more for the rest of our time. So, so this is the ruling that they come to, right? So they, they have this counsel about whether the Gentiles can come in and they say there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. You have freedom in Christ. And I'll unpack that ruling a little bit more in a minute. But I want to talk about this idea of Christian freedom and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And so I want you to picture this. Picture freedom as like a straight road in front of you. And then on the sides of the road are two ditches and you're driving a car that is like really out of alignment. Okay, so if you take your hands off that wheel, it's going to crank hard into one of the ditches. And depending on which way it's out of alignment, it might tend to go to one or the other more than the other direction. All right. So if we take our hands off of the wheel of our lives, we naturally will go into one of these two ditches as opposed to into freedom, which is odd, right? Because why would we not want to pursue freedom? But there's these other desires in us that try and pull us away from freedom. So here's the two ditches on the side of freedom. There's the ditch of religion, and then there's the ditch of unrestrained sin, Okay, so let me talk about the ditch of religion. This is what the religious leaders were trying to do to the Gentiles. So they were claiming that the gospel, and I don't know if they would have said it exactly like this, but the substance of what they were saying was that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't enough. That you actually need to add some things to that. Which again, if you're free, why would you try and add restrictions? And I want to come back to what I said at the beginning. I think it's because we all tend to think that we're better than we actually are. And when you think you're good, you don't want to receive grace as a free gift from Jesus. You want to add to what he can give you to prove that you were worth that gift. So, okay, so imagine this. Imagine there's a person kind of on the edge of the Twin Cities that had fallen on like brutally hard times, no house, no car, no family, no food, whatever. And they're literally starving. And they took a journey to get into the Twin Cities to try and find some help and you come across them. 
And so you run in, you buy them a meal, and you're sitting there, and you, you hand them a meal, and you eat a meal with them. How are they going to respond to that? They're going to be unbelievably grateful, right? Maybe even like in your debt for a long time. As you're hanging out with this person, somebody rolls up in a Ferrari, and you go, maybe that person needs some food too. I don't know what that's why you think, but we're going with it. Okay, maybe that person needs a meal too. So you knock on the window of the Ferrari and he rolls down the window or like opens up the suicide door or whatever and you hand him a meal and you just say, I just thought you might need this. How is that person going to respond? Are they going to be happy with you? No, they're going to be upset. They're going to be offended. Who are you and why do you think that I need you? Why? Because the way that you respond to a gift is entirely dependent on whether you think you need it. And so if you think that you're sick and starving and dying, which the Bible says is the condition of the human heart, that without Jesus, we are dying, then you will receive grace with gratitude and thankfulness. But if you think that you've got something to offer, a gift is no longer good news to you because you want to try and add to it. Now, I want to be clear on this because I think it's, it's too important. Okay? And, and what we believe about God and about the gospel informs the relationship that we have with him. And so I think we've got to say things that are kind of hard to say. There are churches that actually teach that. So they teach that you need Jesus plus something. A lot of you grew up in those churches. I grew up in one. And it's kind of formed the way that I tend to think about Christianity. So you need Jesus, but you also need baptism. You need Jesus, but you need communion or you need confession, or maybe it's not directly stated in their theology, but it's kind of implied like you can be a sinner if it's sort of the quote unquote normal sin, but if it's one of these taboo sins that we've selected, you're not really allowed in this community. And I want to be clear on this. According to the apostles of Jesus and the authority of the New Testament, that is not the gospel and is therefore not authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity is that we are saved by grace alone, access through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's authentic Christianity. But that doesn't just happen where we try and add to the gospel on kind of a corporate theological level. You actually will be tempted to do that every day of your life. So one of the ways I would kind of summarize Martin Luther's teaching is he, he essentially said that trying to add to the gospel or to kind of contribute to our salvation is the default mode of the human heart. You will wake up tomorrow and you will try to earn it. Whether that's trying to impress God or impressing the people in your life or impressing you trying to live up to your standards, you will try to create your own righteousness that only Jesus can offer you. And so you have to learn how to apply the antidote to that poison of religion in your life, which is the gospel. Which is this truth, that there's absolutely nothing you can do to earn his love, but that you have access to it regardless of what you do. That there's nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus, because the foundation of your relationship with him is not based on your character, it's based on his. And even when you're unsteady, and even when you fall in sin, and even when you want to try and earn it, Jesus is there, and he's pursued you from heaven to earth because he wants relationship with you, and that is the only thing that can grant you access to the Father. 
That is the truth that you can never move on from. That's the truth that we preach here every week. I don't know if you've noticed this. I'm letting you in on a little secret. We preach like different parts of the Bible and there's different illustrations, but it's kind of the same thing every week. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead and that changes your life. And the only way to access his forgiveness is through him. You're gonna hear us say that basic thing every week that you can't earn it and here's why. Because you'll forget that every week. You'll walk out of the doors and you will forget that this week because you'll wanna earn it. And so you need to apply that to your soul. Okay, so let's keep moving. That's the first way you can think too highly of yourself and reject the freedom offered in Christ. The second way you can think too highly of yourself is by rejecting the good life that he has for you. By just indulging in sin because you think you know better than he does how you should live. Okay, so I want to look at the, the ruling that the council gave to the Gentiles. So let's, let's look at this, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. What? That's odd, right? Like if you, if I just said, hey, describe for someone what Christianity is about, what they need to know, and you were like, hey, just stay away from blood, I'd be like, ah, I, that's, that's a little weird. What's happening? Well, what he's talking about here is the Jewish, what was called the Jewish ceremonial law. It was their, their food regulations and the ways that they, that they lived. And what they had just declared is that these people coming into faith didn't have to kind of strictly follow that Jewish ceremonial law. So why are they talking about the ceremonial law? Well, this in, in essence is what they're saying is, hey, if you do some of these things, your brothers in Christ, who are Jews, will be offended by them. It, it, it will be discouraging to their faith. And so this is what I want you to know is that, yes, you have freedom, but you also have a responsibility to encourage your brother in Christ because we're all a family. And so I want you to follow some of these things so that you don't detract from their faith. Okay, so that's what they're saying. But there's also a moral command in this verse. And, and they're saying, yes, as a Christian, you have to fo follow the moral implications of the Bible, in particular the New Testament. And he gives one example that represents all of them, but it just happens to be kind of a pertinent cultural example, both for them and for us. He says this in verse 20, abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is kind of a catch-all term for sexual acts outside of marriage between a man and a wife. And, it, and actually not just acts, but thoughts, motivations, those things. And what's kind of interesting here, what I want you to notice, is that this is a declaration of Christian freedom. This is, this is the Emancipation Proclamation for the Gentiles. They're celebrating this. But within that declaration are restrictions on what they shouldn't do, on how they can't live. Now, culturally, that's hard for us. So I think it used to be the case that Christians used to be thought of as having kind of more morality than your average person. So Christians might be like sort of uptight, have too many rules, but, but they sort of had more moral restrictions than your average person. But I actually think our culture is shifting now where our culture is saying, actually, we have the high ground. 
Christians are bigoted. They're restricting. Um, they kill people's freedom. And what we want to do is enhance people's freedom. And so this is actually more moral than the Christian worldview. And I actually can empathize with that to some degree. I come across some of these restrictions in the Bible, and it's hard for me. Like, I don't love it all the time personally. It's weird to teach on it in our culture. But I think it's founded on a misunderstanding of what true freedom is. So the assumption behind that is that true freedom is you getting to live however you want. But the problem with that is, is that you have desires in you that won't lead to freedom. They'll actually kill your soul. So you living however you want and calling it freedom is like a heroin addict living however they want and calling it freedom. So I, I just watched a movie about drug addiction. I, f- I forget the title, but it, it's been rolling around in my head ever since. There's this guy, like when he was young, that kind of, quote-unquote, innocently started into a, you know, he smoked pot. And it was recreational. But then it, it like, spiraled and became other things until eventually he was addicted to heroin. And he lost everything. He lost his friends. He lost his family. He lost his money. And he couldn't stop. So that person, and it was based on a true story, that person had the freedom to do drugs whenever he wanted to. But that freedom was actually killing him and ruining everything about his life. Sin is like that. You will go to it for a quick hit and it might feel good, but you'll have to go back over and over again and it will enslave you. It's not actually free because it's not the way you were born to live. Freedom is learning and disciplining yourself to live the life that you were born to live, that God created you to live because he's good and he knows what's best for you and he knows how you were designed. And that's the reason why he asks you to live in certain ways, which means that you can't follow Jesus without giving up control of your sexuality. So what I, what I don't mean by that is you can't struggle with sexual sin. Okay, the gospel is, is free. But what I do mean is that your heart can't be consumed by sin instead of Jesus. When you meet him, he starts to change your heart and he'll change your life. So let me just back up here and let me just play out this tension in the gospel, okay? So let me give you a couple hard truths about the gospel first. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Colossians 3, 5 and 6 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That there's wrath towards sin, that he hates it. Jesus told a rich man who was asking about the the kingdom of God that he would have to sell everything he owned to enter into the kingdom. Was there a deeper meaning to that? Yes, but I'm just saying that's, That's a hard truth. In order to enter the kingdom of God, your life actually has to change. But let me tell you some other truths. On kind of the the other side of the spectrum, 1 Corinthians says that you are a saint. 
That it's not like some holy people out there, but little you, like you are holy in God's sight. In fact, it goes further than that. It says that you are the place where God dwells. You're his sanctuary. When the, that when God searched the earth and he, he was looking for a place to kind of uniquely dwell, he chose you because he's made you so blameless, so pure, so holy, that you're the holiest thing on this planet. Ephesians 2.8 says that it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, that there's nothing that you can do. Another way to say that is that your sins do not affect your standing with God. Okay, let me, let me like play that out a little bit. You can be on death row for murder and you can be a Christian. You can live a terrible life and on your deathbed decide to trust Jesus and you will go to heaven regardless of how you lived. You can be a stripper or a prostitute. You can be in chronic doubt. You can be a gang member. You can even be a Democrat or a Republican. And you can have relationship with God. Like, hear me on this. You can leave now, go to a bar, get drunk, get a DUI on the way home, go to prison, and that will not affect your standing in Christ. If you've genuinely trusted Jesus, you cannot change the fact that God loves you. And here's how those two come together. Is that when you experience freedom and unconditional love like that, it changes your desires where you don't actually want to live like that. You don't want to do those things because you found a God who has relentlessly loved you and he said, hey, the way to actually be free is to live the way that I told you how to live because I know what's best for you and I'm good and I want a good life for you. And when you catch that, when you get that and you see that freedom, you don't actually use that to run away from him. You use that freedom to run towards him. That's Christian freedom. Now, let me, let me finish on this. That freedom that we have is for us, but it's not only for us. So let me, let me zoom out for a second. Why are they trying to deal with this whole question about if Gentiles can come into the kingdom of God right now? Well, it's because the Jews missed something about the heart of God that was really important. They they were just starting to see that the message was not just for them, but it was for everybody. Like Jews were the chosen people of God. They were given the great kind of cure for the world, but the, the only people, they, they were the only people who had kind of the life of God to push back the decay in the world. But, but here was the problem is they kind of huddled up and held on to that for themselves. And they would trace the reason why they would do that back to Abraham. And they would say, Abraham was this super kind of righteous religious guy and we're a part of his descendants. But here's what they missed is that when God showed up to Abraham, he wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile. That Abraham was a pagan, <laughs> worshiping a bunch of other gods. He had nothing to do with God. He likely wasn't living righteously in any way. And God showed up and started making promises to Abraham because that's what God does. That's what he did to you. You weren't pursuing him. God came to you and he started making promises to you. Hey, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be with you. I want to change your life. I want to bless you. And then you responded to that blessing. 
And let me give you the reason for that blessing. It's from Galatians 3, which a lot of scholars think is pretty closely connected to Acts 15. Galatians 3, starting in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch that? Why was Abraham blessed by God? So that he could be a blessing. And this is what I'm saying. You are blessed with Christian freedom by God so that you can pour that blessing out into the people in your life, into this city. Who are the people in your life who are blessed because you have been blessed? Let me end on this. So sin, sin in the Bible is not just sort of negative behavior. It's this sort of evil force that has changed this world for the worse. So, so picture like chemical warfare. Some of you have seen some of these kind of disgusting images of, of chemical warfare that's been used in serious stuff like that. Sin was like a chemical bomb that went off in God's good and green world. And now there's this haze that's kind of has spread across the world and everything underneath that haze is decaying. And this is what Jesus did in the gospel as he came down into that haze and he offered you an oxygen mask. And he said, I don't want you to die, I want you to live. But he didn't just give you a mask so you could kind of stand there and enjoy it. He gave you a bunch of other masks and a bunch of other oxygen tanks. And he said, spread out into the world. Save as many as you can. Your life has been redeemed by Jesus so that you would spread out into this world and invite them into the true freedom that you've experienced. What are the blessings that you have in your life? The gifts that God has given you the finances that God has given you, the friends that God has given you, all of those things are so that you would leverage them so that other people could come in. And by the way, you've been doing that. You did that with Multiply. We said, hey, we want to do this for the next person and you guys came through. That's the type of church that you are. Let's keep going. Let's invite this city into the freedom that we've gotten to experience in Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for freedom. Um, thank you for freedom from the consequences of our sin, that you didn't just kind of leave us in our unrighteousness, but that you've provided a way out, and that it's not us being good, it's you being really good. Um, but thanks also for not leaving us in the slavery of our sin and calling us to live better lives. And so help us to be people who turn from sin and believe that you're doing it, not because you're asking us to, not because you're kind of a bad father or, or because you're putting on unnecessary restrictions, but just because you're good and you want a better life for us. Help us to believe that and move forward in it and to turn from sin. And then help us to invite people in our lives into that freedom that we've gotten to experience. Would we go out into this world and be a representative of you and what you have to offer? We love you. Amen.